Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. Welcome to the KFAX Ministry of the Week Sunday Message. The Bay Area has a rich diversity of churches and ministries that serve the community in Jesus' name. And here at KFAX, we love to shine a spotlight onto the great things God is doing through the kingdom work of pastors and ministry leaders. We feature a sermon or presentation from that leader to get you better acquainted with churches who will welcome you to worship, and ministry opportunities that invite your involvement. Welcome to the KFAX Ministry of the Week Sunday Message. Today we are very pleased to have Pastor Flavio Cavallo of Life in Christ Ministry International. You can find them at lifeinchristministry.org. You can attend their Sunday morning services at 10936 San Pablo Avenue in El Cerrito, where they have a small group service at 8.30 in the morning, worship service at 9.30, also a Portuguese worship service at 11.15, and Thursday nights, they do a Bible study at 7.15. Listen to their radio show Sundays at 1.30 p.m., Life in Christ Radio, on AM 1100 KFAX. On their website, they say in Matthew 22, Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment, Teacher, what is the most important commandment in the law? Jesus answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and most important commandment. The second most important commandment is like this one, and it is, love others as much as you love yourself. Last words are often lasting words. Jesus' last words to his disciples are recorded in Matthew 28. Jesus came to them and said, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Go to the people of all nations and make them my disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to do everything I have told you. I will be with you always, even until the end of the world. At Life in Christ, they see the great commandment and the great commission as their reasons for being. They're here to love God, to love our neighbor, and to share Jesus Christ with the world. Find out more about Life in Christ Ministry International at their website, lifeinchristministry.org. Or at our website, kfax.com. And now, Pastor Flavio Cavallo on the KFAX Ministry of the Week Sunday Message. Today we begin exploring the prophetic books of the Old Testament. And we begin with Isaiah, the Shakespeare among the prophets. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross that we might live. We ask you now, Holy Spirit, to come and be our teacher and our guide as we open our hearts and minds to the Word of God. This we pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. According to Isaiah 1.1, he prophesied during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. That places Isaiah's ministry in the late 700s and early 600s before Christ and makes him one of the prophets with the longest ministry in the Bible. The name Isaiah means Jehovah is salvation. Isaiah was the son of Amos, not to be confused with the prophet Amos. 
He was likely a member of the royal family. And we say this because he seemed to have uh, easy access to the king, uh, or the kings, really, and the high priest. And he also displays uh, an unusually high level of education. So, again, this leads us to believe that he was probably a member of the royal family. He has the vastest uh, vocabulary of all the prophets. For instance, Ezekiel's vocabulary is made up of 1,535 words. Jeremiah has a slightly larger vocabulary, 1,653 words. The whole book of Psalms has a vocabulary of 2,170 words. Isaiah, by contrast, has a vocabulary of 2,186 words. That's why we refer to him as the Shakespeare of prophets. He was very well educated. He was very well read. He was a student of history and of foreign affairs. Isaiah was a statesman. He was a poet. He was a visionary. Most importantly, he was a godly voice warning the people of the danger of violating our covenant with God. Finally, it is through Isaiah that God also gave us some of the clearest pictures of Messiah who was yet to come. Now, what do we know about Isaiah the man? We know that he was married and had two children. His life ministry extended through the reign of five kings, as we already mentioned. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and probably Manasseh as well. The Bible tells us also in Isaiah chapter 6 that he saw the Lord. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And then in chapter 53, he also saw Messiah as his life was being offered as a sacrifice for the sin of mankind. Tradition tells us that Isaiah died as a martyr probably during the reign of evil king Manasseh. So, during the reign of four kings, he ministers unhindered, and then finally, when an evil king rises, Manasseh, one of the worst kings in in, uh, Judah's history, uh, he is martyred for his faith. Now, let's look at the book of Isaiah itself. The book of Isaiah is one of the longest and most profound books of the Bible. It addresses Israel, but not only Israel, it also addresses world nations. Isaiah sees himself as a prophet not only to Israel, but to the nations. He speaks for God who rules over all. Isaiah also talks about creation in chapter 42. He deals with a new heaven and a new earth in chapter 65 and 66. In chapter 6, as we already mentioned, he talks about God in in his glory, sitting on his throne in his temple. In chapter 7 of Isaiah, we have references to the virgin birth. In chapter 9, there are prophecies about the coming Messiah. In chapter 14, he talks about the fall of Satan, or Lucifer. In uh, chapter 19, there are perhaps references to the great pyramids of Egypt. In chapter 53, he talks about the suffering servant. In chapter 61, Isaiah talks about the ministry of Messiah. 
In chapter 65 and 66, Isaiah deals with the millennium and eternity beyond. So, as we look at the book of Isaiah, we realize that it covers a vast span of time from creation to the millennium and beyond. It reminds us that God is the Lord of time, the Lord of history, and the Lord of the affairs of man. Now, let's talk a little about Isaiah's world. In Isaiah's lifetime, the northern kingdom of Israel had wandered far into apostasy and away from their covenant with Jehovah. Judah in the south was slightly better, but much of their godliness was only superficial. In Europe, Rome was being founded right around this time, and in Greece, the first Olympic Games were being celebrated. But closer to home, the Assyrian Empire was beginning to take shape and would eventually topple Israel and threaten Judah. And it is in this season that God raises up Isaiah to tell his children, we need to talk. The time is about 750 before Christ, give or take a decade or two. For 200 years, Israel has been backsliding and judgment is getting nearer. Israel was steeped in idolatry and injustice, and Judah followed not far behind. In Judah, despite having some godly kings, despite having the temple, despite still having a priesthood, the people had only a nominal faith in God. God called Isaiah to tell the people, Change is coming, and God wants to talk to you. Through the prophet Isaiah, God tells his people, let's talk before it's too late. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. The Lord has said, listen, heaven and earth, the children I raised have turned against me. Oxen and donkeys know who owns and feeds them, but my people won't ever learn. God says through Israel, even animals know better than to do what you're doing, to turn on the very person that takes care of you. Oh, that we would heed the words of Isaiah today. History is repeating itself. God made America a great nation, yet America is now choosing to forsake God. This did not work well for Israel. It will not work well for America. Isaiah 1, chapter, uh, verse 10. You are no better than the leaders and people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, what a sad comment. When God looked at Israel, he said, You are no better than Sodom and Gomorrah. And look how it turned out for them. By the way, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was gross immorality. A complete disregard for the law of God. In 21st century America, immorality is becoming so commonplace that we are now shocked by displays of morality. We are surprised when someone extols the virtues of abstinence, or when we see a couple celebrating their 25th anniversary. And we are almost embarrassed when someone dares to call abortion, sex outside of marriage, and homosexuality a sin. What is happening? Immorality is becoming rampant, 
and we are becoming deadened to it. What should we do? Isaiah chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. Wash yourselves clean. I am disgusted with your filthy deeds. Stop doing wrong and learn to live right. See that justice is done. Defend widows and orphans and help those in need. God says, forsake evil and do the right thing. Make sure that justice is done. Help those in need. Notice how practical godliness is. Isaiah 1.18 I, the Lord, invite you to come and talk it over. Your sins are scarlet red, but they will be whiter than snow or wool. Praise the Lord. There's hope after all. God says, come, let us reason together. I love this about the God of the Bible. He invites us to come to an open dialogue. Come, let us reason together. Today, God is opening his arms towards you and saying, Son, daughter, come in a little closer and let's talk about things. Let's make things right. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. If you willingly obey me, the best crops in the land will be yours. But if you turn against me, your enemies will kill you. I, the Lord, have spoken. It doesn't get any clearer than that, does it? Dear friend, here is the secret we learn from the onset of the book of Isaiah. Loving God and doing the right thing is the way to joy and happiness. Loving God and doing the right thing is the way to joy and happiness. So God calls us to sit down and talk it over with Him. God is opening His arms towards you and I today and inviting us to a dialogue. He wants us to be healed. He wants us to prosper. He wants us to be whole. Would you accept His invitation today? If so, would you take a moment and pray with me right now that God would come and touch us, that He would come and touch you, that He would touch our nation and bring us back to righteousness. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love towards us. And thank you that you are a God who dialogues, a God who invites conversation. We admit our sin, our failure to obey your laws, and we ask you to forgive us. We thank you that Jesus died on the cross, that our sin might be forgiven. We accept the gift of his forgiveness. We accept your love and we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Come, make our heart your home as we surrender our lives to you for today and always. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. The freedom to choose is a gift from God, and it's wonderful to be a free agent in God's universe. But beware, choices have consequences. The choice is yours, but so are the consequences. Ohio Attorney General Mike DeWine wrote, One of the most important things that I have learned in my 57 years is that life is all about choices. On every journey you take, you face choices. At every fork in the road, you make a choice. And it is those decisions that shape our lives. Today we look at the road taken by two kings who reigned in neighboring kingdoms, 
Israel, and Judah. Their names were Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Now, with the death of Solomon, his son Rehoboam inherited a united kingdom. 1 Kings 12.1 tells us, And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. Notice, all Israel went there to make him king. At Rehoboam's coronation, the people asked for tax relief. He refused. Ten out of the twelve tribes then rejected him as their king. 1 Kings 12.15 So the king did not listen to the people. For the turn of events was from the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord had spoken by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. So this weakening of the kingdom was from God because of Solomon's rebellious ways. Remember back in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 9 through 13 tells us, The Lord God of Israel had appeared to Solomon two times and warned him not to worship foreign gods. But Solomon disobeyed and did did it anyways. This made the Lord very angry, and he said to Solomon, You did what you wanted and not what I told you to do. Now I'm going to take your kingdom from you and give it to one of your officials. But because David was your father, you will remain king as long as you live. I will wait until your son becomes king, then I will take the kingdom from him. When I do, I will still let him rule one tribe, because I have not forgotten that David was my servant, and Jerusalem is my city. Solomon's disobedience and rebellion against God set him and his nation on a course to heartache. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 20 Now it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back. They sent for him and called him to to the congregation and made him king over all Israel. There was none who followed the house of David except for the tribe of Judah. God had told Jeroboam ahead of time through the prophet Ahijah that this would happen. Back in 1 Kings chapter 11, let me read verses 30 through 39. This is years back. One day, when Jeroboam was leaving Jerusalem, he met Ahijah the prophet from Shiloh. No one else was anywhere around. Suddenly, Ahijah took off his new coat and ripped it into twelve pieces. Then he said, Jeroboam, take ten pieces of this coat and listen to what the Lord God of Israel says to you. Jeroboam, I am the Lord God, and I am about to take Solomon's kingdom from him and to give you ten tribes to rule. But Solomon will still rule one tribe, since he is the son of David, my servant, and Jerusalem is my chosen city. Solomon and the Israelites are not like their ancestor David. They will not listen to me, obey me, or do what is right. They have turned for me to worship Astaroth, the goddess of Sidon, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of Ammon. Solomon is David's son, and David was my chosen leader, who did what I commanded. So I will set Solomon, I will let Solomon be king until he dies. Then I will give you ten tribes to rule. But Solomon's son will still rule one tribe. This way, my servant David will always have a descendant ruling in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to be worshipped.
you will be king of, of Israel and will rule over a nation, the, every nation you want. I will help you if you obey me. And if you do what I say, as my servant David did, I will always let someone from your family rule in Israel, just as someone from David's family will always rule in Judah. The nation of Israel will be yours. I will punish the descendants of David, but not forever. Notice that God's promise and instructions to Jeroboam were very clear. The promises God made to Jeroboam were very much like the promises he had made to David. So this is an awesome privilege. God is saying, I'm going to allow you to rule ten tribes of Israel. And your children, your descendants, will rule next to you. And there will be, a, there will be a, a lineage of kings, a, a perpetual lineage of kings. And I will prosper your nation. But I will also bless the seed of David and continue to bless Jerusalem because that's the city where I chose to be worshipped. Now, as a result of these events, Israel then became a divided kingdom, as we just read. Israel was divided into two. In the south, there was Judah. And the capital of Judah was Jerusalem. Joined by Benjamin and Levites and others who wanted to go back to the come from the that came from the north and wanted to go back to the south and stay there this became one nation one tribe the tribe of Judah and it was led by the descendants of David beginning with Rehoboam now in the north you had 10 tribes and they kept the name Israel their capital initially was Shechem but later the city of Samaria was built as the capital of the northern kingdom. This kingdom, again, was made up of ten tribes. In God's plan, they would be led by Jeroboam and his children. But because of his rebellion, as we will see, his dynasty will be cut short, and other dynasties will rise in its place. And it's going to be a bloody mess. So, recapping, a growing, prosperous, united and influential kingdom was now divided in two and the two kingdoms were at odds with each other though there were relatives and once before a united nation they are now at odds with each other but it gets worse first kings chapter 12 verses 26 and 27 one day jeroboam started thinking everyone in israel still goes to the temple in jerusalem to offer sacrifices to jehovah what if they become loyal to David's family again? They will kill me and accept Rehoboam as their king. Afraid of losing political power, Jeroboam created a new religion for his nation. 1 Kings 12.28 Therefore, the king asked advice and made two calves of gold and said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. Notice, he says, It's too much trouble for you to travel all the way to Jerusalem to worship God. No, you don't need to do that. Here are two golden calves. He put one in the south of his nation and one in the very north. And he said, when you need to worship, you just go to these towns and worship this golden calf which I built for you to make your, your life 
easier and to make worship more convenient. Beware of convenient spirituality, folks. A faith that asks nothing of you will offer nothing to you. A faith that requires nothing of you will have nothing to give you. I believe we, the church, must make the kingdom of God accessible to everyone, but we are not supposed to make it convenient. Several years ago, in the aftermath of a stressful incident in our church, I prayed to God, Lord, help me make church comfortable for your children. The reply came suddenly and immediately. God said, don't try to make it comfortable. Simply make it safe. I learned my lesson. God doesn't want a comfortable church. He wants a place that is safe for people to come in and to worship and to open up. But it's not supposed to be comfortable. It's not supposed to be convenient. Again, afraid of losing political power, Jeroboam created a new religion for his nation, and he made it convenient for people to worship. 1 Kings 12, verses 30 through 31. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before one of these golden calves as far as Dan. He also made houses on high places and appointed priests from around, from among the people who were not of the Levites. In this made-up religion, Jeroboam adopted the pagan practice of worshiping on mountaintops or high places. He also consecrated priests as a political placement. Instead of Levites, he picked from the general population. And so he led the nation into pagan worship. And God considered it sin. God raised up a prophet to declare the destruction of the altar and the death of the false priests. In 1 Kings chapter 13, verse 1, the Bible says, And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Verse 2, And the man cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born in the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice upon you the priests of the high places who burn incense upon you, and men's bones shall be burned upon you. Now, the interesting thing is that this prophecy would not be fulfilled for another 300 years. But notice, God said, this altar is doomed from its beginning. And a child, a descendant of David, will rise and come here and destroy it. And again, that did happen 300 years later. I find it also interesting that God named that king, that descendant of David by name, Josiah, And we know that Josiah reigned 300 years later. Folks, God is awesome. He knows the end from the beginning. He has it all figured out. So the prophet anointed by the Holy Spirit said, This altar will be destroyed by a man by the name of Josiah. He isn't even born yet, but he's coming. And sure enough, 300 years years later, it happened just as the prophet spoke. Now, Jeroboam should have learned his lesson. He should have repented. And we wish he had, but he didn't. 
we find in chapter 14, again, he is up to his rebellious ways. Chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. At that time, Abijah the son of Jeroboam became sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Please arise and disguise yourself, that they may not recognize you as the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh. Indeed, Ahijah the prophet is there, who told me that I would be king over this people. So he asks, Jeroboam asks his wife to go to the old prophet who had prophesied that he would be one day king and said, ask him about our child. The child was sick. Now by this time, many years have gone by and Ahijah the prophet was now blind, the Bible says. His eyes had failed him. He was in poor health. He was in the end of his days. And yet, he was still in fellowship with the Lord and still vibrant in ministry. So the Holy Spirit, before um, Jeroboam's wife ever arrived, the Holy Spirit revealed to him, there's a woman coming and she's disguised, but this is who she is and this is what is going on. Though blind and despite the disguise, God revealed to Ahijah what was happening and he prophesied the end of the house of Jeroboam as judgment. Ahijah told Jeroboam's wife that the child would die the moment she set foot back in the city. And he also said, your, the kingdom of your husband is doomed because of your rebellion. 1 Kings chapter 14 verse 20. The period that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years, so he rested with his fathers. Then Nadab his son reigned in his place. Nadab will reign for only two years in a conspiracy against him. He is murdered along with all his family and his relatives. This was re- related to us in 1 Kings chapter 15, verses 25 through 30. It tells us that dissatisfied with the obvious wrong direction that the nation was going and lusting for power, a man by the name of Baasha from the tribe of Issachar plotted and killed Nadab, the son of Jeroboam. Then he went after all their family. And so, the uh, dynasty of Jeroboam comes to a bloody and abrupt end because of his sin, because of his poor choices, because he chose to rebel against God's revealed will. God had promised him so much, and yet he turned his back on God. Now, how are things going in the south? Let's check it out. 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 21. In Rehoboam, remember Rehoboam is the son of Solomon and the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. In Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Naama and Amoritus. I find it interesting that this is mentioned here, his mother and, and her nationality. I think there's something here that we need to notice. Whereas Jeroboam was drawn to evil by political ambition, remember he didn't want to lose his kingdom, Rehoboam may have been driven to evil by family influences. We're about to see that just like Jeroboam in the north, 
Rehoboam in the south also rebelled against Jehovah. But why? It may have been in part because of the influence of his pagan mother. Remember, Naamah was from Ammon, the country of Ammon. Just as his pagan wives had turned Solomon's heart away from God, now his children were likely being influenced away from God by their ungodly pagan mothers. 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 22, Now Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins which they committed, more than all their fathers had done. Rehoboam's kingdom was attacked by the king of Egypt to the south, and they were also at war with Jeroboam to the north all of his life. These were troubled times for Judah. Rehoboam did not enjoy peace and prosperity. 1 Kings 14.31 So Rehoboam rested with his fathers and was buried with his father in the city of David. His mother's name was Naamah in Ammonitis. Then Abijam his son reigned in his place. And so Rehoboam's life and reign came again to an abrupt end after only 17 years of reigning and 17 troubled years. Notice, both kings, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, started their reign with promises from God and potential to prosper. Both kings, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, ended their reigns with less than they started with and judgment looming over their families. Why? Because of their poor choices. Disobedience to God rebellion to God's ways. So here are our closing thoughts for today. First, beware of the influences in your life. Beware of the influences in your life. Proverbs 4.23 reminds us, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. Beware of the influences in your life. Number two, if you are headed in the wrong direction, God allows you turns. I love that. God allows you turns. Ezekiel 18.32 tells us, For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, churn and live. Churn and live, God says. He has no pleasure in the death of one who is in rebellion with him. A person who is headed in the wrong way and will ultimately end in hell, separated from God for eternity. God loves you too much. And so he is knocking on the door of your heart and he's saying, I allow you turns. Turn around and live. Ezekiel 18.32 And then finally, consider this. Stay in the plan of God. Stay in the plan of God. Isaiah 30.21 tells us, Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. See, God says, whenever you're about to make a wrong turn, I will warn you and I will tell you, walk in this way. This is the way. God urges us to stay in his plan because he knows in his plan we will be blessed. Isaiah is the Shakespeare of the Old Testament. Well-educated, well-informed, sharp and colorful. But more importantly, Isaiah was a bold proclaimer of divine truth. 
There's an interesting parallel between the book of Isaiah and the Bible in general. The book of Isaiah has 66 chapters. The Bible has 66 books. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah concern sin and judgment. The first 39 books of the Bible consists of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament primarily talks about sin and judgment. Then there are 27 chapters in the book of Isaiah, the final 27 chapters that complete the book. And these 27 chapters are concerned with hope and promise. And that parallels the 27 last books of the Bible that make up the New Testament. The theme of the New Testament is also hope and promise. So it's interesting how the book of Isaiah mirrors the Bible in general. Now, let's talk about the layout of the book. There are three main sections in the book of Isaiah. The first one has to do with judgment. That's chapters 1 through 35. The second section has to do with deliverance. That's chapter 36 through 39. And the third and final section is promise. Chapters 40 through 66. Let's look a little closer at these sections. The first section, once again, has to do with judgment, and it it goes from chapter 1 to chapter 35. In the first six chapters, chapters 1 through 6, judgment is uh, concerns Judah. In chapters 7 through 12, the focus is on Israel. In chapters 13 through 23, the focus is is on various nations, neighboring nations to Judah and Israel. Chapters 24 through 27 have to do with judgment concerning the world as a whole. Finally, we look at chapters 28 through 33, where Jerusalem is focused, and judgment concerns the city of Jerusalem. And then chapters 34 through 35 talk about the end of history and the final judgment, the final judgment. So the first 35 chapters of Isaiah are centered around this theme of judgment. Judgment to the people of God, judgment to neighboring pagan nations, judgment to the world as a whole, judgment to Jerusalem in particular, and then judgment to the human race, the final judgment. Then, in chapters 36 and 30 through 39, we have a section that deals with a specific act of deliverance by God, when God delivered King Hezekiah from the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and the, his interaction with these two pagan nations is portrayed for us, and there are a lot of lessons to be learned about God's deliverance and not taking that deliverance for granted. The final section of Isaiah has to do with promise, and this is perhaps the most beautiful section of the book. This section deals with the new kingdom, a kingdom of justice and peace. It's in this section that we have some of the uh, the, the most beautiful promises concerning the coming of Messiah and the establishment of his kingdom here on earth. Today, we will focus our attention on the first section of the book. I want to talk to you about judgment. It is the bulk of the book, the first 35 chapters. And it begins, we begin today, in chapter 2, 
verse 1 and then verse 12. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 and then 12, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah in Jerusalem. Verse 5, O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Verse 12, For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. It's interesting that Isaiah says he saw the word. Usually when we think of a word, we think of a word being heard. But the word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah in Jerusalem is how the book begins. Apparently Isaiah not only heard the voice of God, but he also experienced the presence and the power of God. There was seeing involved. It was a full experience of the majesty of God. Notice also that Isaiah called his hearers to walk in the light of the Lord before the coming of the day of the Lord, a day of judgment against sin. God's judgment begins with God's people. And so this passage is addressed to Judah. As a matter of fact, look with me at chapter 5, verse 7. He, referring to God, looked for justice, but behold, oppression. And he looked for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. Then chapter 5, verse 24, Because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel, therefore the anger of the Lord is aroused against his people. God's people should know better. Yet they were practicing oppression and injustice. They rejected the ways of God and were provoking God to anger. So God's judgment begins with God's people, the tribe of Judah. The next word of judgment is directed to Israel. Israel in chapter 7 through 12. Look with me at chapter 7 verse 5, Isaiah 7 5. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves, and set a king over them, the son of Tabel. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. Notice here Israel was joining its neighboring pagan nations against their own brothers, the tribe of Judah. But God said, I will not let these plots against my children stand. Israel was betraying its alliance and allegiance to their brethren to the south, the tribe of Judah. And instead it was aligning itself with pagan nations. God said, I will not allow this alliance to stand, nor will I allow Judah to fall. Chapter 7, verse 9. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. What a powerful warning. God says, you need to listen to me and believe what I'm telling you. Otherwise, you will not be established. Verse 14. Isaiah 7:14 Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel God says as proof positive that Judah will not be destroyed the king and young queen will have a child 
an heir to their throne. Yet God was also declaring a bigger and deeper truth. The ultimate heir to the throne of David would be Messiah. Messiah would come to save not just Judah and not just Israel, but the whole human race. And so in chapter 9, Isaiah 9, the Lord continues in verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. God would send a Savior to the world, and he did. Two thousand years ago, God stepped into human history and became one of us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But the story does not end there. One day soon, that Savior is coming back to earth, not to die on a cross, but to rule and reign from a throne in Jerusalem and to make all things right. Then, according to Isaiah, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Maranatha, we look forward to the coming of earth's true king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, after correcting his own children, God will now address neighboring nations. This section of Isaiah reminds us that God is not not only the God of Israel, He is the God of the whole world. All peoples and nations are ultimately accountable to Him. So, in this third section of Judgment, chapters 13 through 23, nine nations are mentioned and judged. Nine nations, all neighbors of Judah and Israel. Chapter 13, verse 1, the burden against Babylon. Chapter 14, verse 25, God says, I will break the Assyrian. Chapter 14, verse 29, do not rejoice all of you in Philistia. Chapter 15, verse 1, the burden against Moab. Chapter 17, verse 1, the burden against Damascus. Chapter 18, verse 1, Woe to the land shadowed with buzzing wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. Chapter 19, verse 1, The burden against Egypt. Chapter 21, verse 11, The burden against Duma. Chapter 21, verse 13, The burden against Arabia. Chapter 22, verse 1, The burden against the Valley of Vision. Nine different nations are mentioned here, and all of them are brought to an account before God. The nations are condemned for pride, arrogance toward God, cruelty toward Judah and Israel, and injustice toward people. Again, these are the main crimes, the main sins they have committed. Pride, arrogance toward God, cruelty toward Judah and Israel, and injustice to the people. God holds all human beings accountable to humility before Him and goodness towards our neighbor. 
So here God continues to correct neighboring nations. He is Lord over them, even though they may not recognize Him or acknowledge Him. Yet He is God over them too, whether they realize it and recognize it or not. Then we come to chapters 24 through 27. Isaiah 24 through 27. And this is judgment against the world as a whole. Chapter 24, verses 5 and on. The Bible tells us, The earth is also defiled under its inhabitants, because they have transgressed the laws, changed ordinances, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, the curse has devoured the earth, and those who dwell in it are desolate. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. Notice here, the whole world is being corrupted and destroyed by humanity's disregard for God in disobedience to His ways. God has revealed Himself to us, and we are accountable to Him for the truth we already know. But in the middle of this warning of judgment, in the middle of decay and decline, there is hope. Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4, You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah the Lord is everlasting strength. Hallelujah. Here's God's promise. Safety and peace are available to those who trust in God and keep their lives focused on Him. You will keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because He trusts in you. Therefore, trust in the Lord for in Yahweh the Lord is everlasting strength. Isaiah chapter 26, verses 3 and 4. Then chapter 28, verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. From Israel and Jerusalem in particular, God has, is, uh, was establishing a plan of salvation. That plan, that foundation laid in Zion is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and earth's true King. There's safety and peace for those who build their lives on this sure foundation, the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But those who look elsewhere for salvation, to them, God warns of impending doom. Isaiah 31, verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. What a powerful warning where God says, those who are looking for help elsewhere will discover that there is no help away from Jehovah. Those who do not look to the Holy One of Israel will not find rest. But those who run to Him will find peace, will find joy, will find fulfillment, 
in the forgiveness of their wrongs. Isaiah 34, verse 1. Come near, you nations, to hear and to heed. You people, let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all things that come forth from it. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Notice the day of vengeance and the year of recompense. Vengeance is judgment against sin. Recompense is reward for things done right. And here's God's word for his children. Isaiah 35 verses 3 and on. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, Be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. God says, take care of the weak and encourage the feeble. And remember, God is coming to set all things right. He will take vengeance on sin and evil. And he will recompense those who have done what is right. So we conclude our time today with three important thoughts. First, remember this. God will judge sin. God will judge sin. A just God must deal with sin, and he will. Only sin that has been forgiven by being washed away by the blood of Jesus can be forgotten. That is why we urge you to confess your sin to Jesus and allow Him to cleanse you today. You've been listening to Pastor Flavio Cavallo of Life in Christ Ministry International on the KFAX Ministry of the Week Sunday message. Find out more about today's speaker at their website, lifeinchristministry.org, or at our website, kfax.com, where you can also find links to podcasts of this program. I'm Mike Matthews. Join us here again next week for the Ministry of the Week Sunday message on AM 1100 KFAX.